0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on lifesightnews.com. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today I'm going to be talking to my friend Eric Scheidler to introduce you to one of America's legacy pro-life organizations. He's the son of Joe Scheidler, and those of you who remember my earlier interview with Joe Scheidler will know that Joe Scheidler is a veteran pro-life activist now in his 90s who both marched on Selma with Dr. King, founded one of the first pro-life organizations in the United States dedicated to direct action and had really just an incredible pro-life story encompassing decades worth of action as his biography says from the Uh, front lines to the steps of the Supreme Court. Well, Eric Scheidler, his son, now runs the Pro-Life Action League and he's launched some of the biggest campaigns in the country over the last several years. He was only six when his parents first got involved in the pro-life movement just before Roe v. Wade came down from the Supreme Court. He grew up attending protests and rallies and he's now been involved with the work of the Pro-Life Action League since its founding in 1980, stuffing envelopes during the league's early years and working occasional summers during college and so i wanted to talk to eric scheidler a bit about some of the campaigns he's been involved in where he think the thinks the abortion wars are headed and what it's like out on the front lines of the pro-life movement in the united states so without further introduction from me here's my conversation with my friend eric scheidler of the pro-life action league all right, just to start off, how uh, what was it like to grow up the son of, of a, pro, a full-time pro-life activist? I didn't grow up as the son of, of a full-time pro-life activist, but my kids will. So I'm very interested in what that experience was like for you. Well, you know, it there
1: was a good side and there was a downside to it growing up. for, And I think all of us kids, I'm the oldest of seven Scheidler kids, okay. and uh, all of us would say that, that... Um, You know, on the one hand, it it raised us with a real sense of having a purpose in life. And all of us have that, you know, um, that that we feel called to have a meaning in what we're doing, you know, and that doesn't mean we all have to be um, warriors for a social cause, Um, but that we want to be doing something that has some kind of a value and finding the value in what we're doing. And I think that's a problem today. I think people have a very narrow view of what it means to have a meaningful job. And, um, and you, you see that in, in kind of some of the, the virtue signaling that goes on, say, with entertainers. They don't understand that being an entertainer and giving people uh, a release from, the, from daily life through music that they love or through a TV show that they, you know, can relax and enjoy, that that's a good thing in and of itself. You don't have to also be campaigning for some kind of a cause and potentially, you know, signaling disapproval to half of your potential audience. Um, you know, so whether it's a, a call to be doing something like I'm doing, fighting, fighting abortion, fighting for justice for for unborn children, or it's something like, you know, one of my, one of my brothers is a, a landscape designer, uh, works with teams and of, of workers and puts together plans. Um, you know, that's not, that's a very different job to what I'm doing, but for him, it's, it satisfies his desire to kind of work with nature to make the world a more beautiful place. We have our eyes on kind of the higher purpose of things from having grown up in that context. And of course, um, we all were, were um, filled with a lot of respect for our father, you know, for sacrificing so much, for leaving a lucrative position uh, in the advertising world to uh, to take on a social cause with all the financial burdens. And, and later on, the, the courts that uh, he was dragged through and the, uh, the vandalism of our home and, you know, being attacked in the press and all that sort of thing. We saw, you know, some real heroic activity by our father, and, and that was very uh, you know, really impressed uh, all of us um, with a sense of admiration and um, an appreciation for his courage. It also, I think, inoculated us against following the crowd. You know, we could see, we we would have been at a rally or protest or something, and we see how the the papers cover it and how wrong they get it, how hard of a time they had just (laughs) spelling our last name, you know, these basic details. That instilled in all of us a real skepticism about the media way before, you know uh, others, especially on the conservative side of things, really started to talk about media bias and um, you know how we can 't trust the media. We as kids knew that we really couldn 't trust the media. We had that really baked into our our lives um, and it and it also gave us a willingness to stand up i mean right now, in the midst of this pandemic um, with the the mask mandates and the lockdown, uh, I think all of us in the Scheidler family, I was talking with some of my kids about this the other day, because they too have grown up as we, as me and my siblings did with a pro-life activist father. Uh, One of my daughters was saying, you know, I I feel like the fact that we'll stand out on the streets with abortion victim signs and get yelled at and realize it's okay, um, makes it easier for us to, you know, resist the masking or, um, you know, to argue with our friends who are all in favor of, of perpetual lockdown and so forth. Now, there was a downside to it, too, which was, you know, we could become pariahs very quickly. Um, Every conversation, and I think back in the 70s and 80s when I grew up, you were more likely to get this question, hey, what does your dad do? And that was a question that could lead to a conversation, an argument even, that would last for months. I mean, uh, I had arguments with people on my dorm floor when I was a freshman at the University of Illinois that went on for, for months. I mean, it wasn't like every day we were yelling at each other, but, you know, back and forth. And, And some of that was good. I mean, it gave you an opportunity to share with people. It was a a door that could be open, Uh, but it also could lead to some, you know, embarrassment and some um, difficult times. And, you know, there were times some of my siblings talk about when they were, you know, a teacher would would ask them to talk about what dad does and, you know, they would have to then kind of be outed as a sort of radical figure,
0: um,
1: (laughs) you know, to their whole class. And that can be really, uh, really painful for a teenager, you know, to be the weirdo in a classroom. So, um, and that's something that, you know, myself, I've tried to shelter my children from to some degree. Um, uh, Trying to have a normal family life. And my parents did that too. You know, we were never required to do pro-life stuff and I don't make my kids do any of this stuff. I ask them, I invite them to come and play their violins at a memorial service for aborted babies or to come out and be my photographer on a face the truth tour when we go out on the streets with our abortion victim signs to be on my staff and um, it's the opportunities there and they take it. My kids have all been involved in the work. They've all been on staff during Face the Truth tours and they've contributed with their talents, photography and music and, and art and other things like that. So. Um, we've uh, we've been able to, to, to kind of protect them a little bit from from some of that by giving them that freedom and and trying to have a more normal home life to more the extent that we can to the extent that we can
0: it's so interesting when you bring up the fact that you knew that the media was lying because you you actually saw yourself referenced in articles and and, and knew it wasn't true because for me um, I was a conservative as a teenager, and uh, you know, I read Ann Coulter and, and, you know, the stereotypical people who I don't read much anymore. Um, but I wasn't really involved in the pro-life movement until my first year uh, of university. But I, So I had this idea about media bias, but not until I saw full-page articles, sometimes front-page newspaper articles, describing events that I was at or events I'd organized or events I'd spoken at. Did I realize that it's not sometimes it's just sloppiness and incompetence uh, and often it's just sort of overt brazen lying like I saw coverage of a political rally once where they neglected to mention you know a 25 man protest that was right there I saw uh, I'll give you uh, I'll give you the craziest example and I'd like to hear a, a counter example from you we would hang these banners over the overpasses. That show a, a abortion victims. It's something that um, our mutual friend Mark Harrington from Created Equal does as well uh, over in Ohio. And uh, for the longest time, they wanted to prove that these these were a, a you know a sort of a hazard for traffic. But we had actually gone to the police and gotten the uh, the project approved, and they had come and checked all of our safety measures to ensure that what we were doing was totally safe. Um, what we were doing was no different than what any other billboard was doing. And uh, one day there was a car accident uh, 40 minutes before we showed up with our banner and they sent a a newspaper photographer out, took a picture behind that car accident up at the overpass and the headline was anti-abortion banner hangs over morning crash. And at no point in the article did they mention that the car accident had taken place 40 minutes before the anti-abortion banner had shown up. And I remember reading that and I was it was just like white-hot rage immediately like these people don't actually care. We essentially have to act in public uh, under the assumption that we will be smeared and, and 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 basically do whatever we can to ensure bad faith actors can't act in bad faith to mischaracterize What we're doing what were some examples that you can think of
1: well i mean there's countless examples of a protest that had you know uh you know one or two thousand pro-lifers and a tiny handful maybe 12 (laughs) pro-aborts and dueling protests you know uh it's harder to lie about that with photographs Um, and sometimes the photographs would undermine the narrative that the media was trying to portray their own photographs would do that but an example that comes to mind is uh, when Planned Parenthood opened their mega center in the town where I live, Aurora, which is a, about 30 miles west of Chicago, we held a big community rally at a, a community center and um, the media came out for it. There were about 400 people packed in. It was standing room only. We had to turn people away because the community was was so opposed to Planned Parenthood coming into this town. We had a whole series of speakers and one of those speakers was my dad and he talked about how Planned Parenthood treats Uh, young women like they're, you know, like rooting hogs or something like that. That Planned Parenthood Mm -hmm. treats them like they're they're animals without self-control. The newspaper story the next day says, and you know, you can see where this is going. They said that uh, pro-life activist Joe Scheidler said teenage girls are rooting hogs or something like this, whatever the exact words were. He didn't do that at all. He characterized Planned Parenthood as having that attitude and and, and the pro-life movement as holding them to a higher standard and not having that attitude. So it was exactly the opposite of what he had said. And I wrote a letter to the editor. They did publish it, I believe, in the Aurora Beacon. But um, she was, the, the editor of the paper was hotly disputing. Well, I heard what I heard. Well, we recorded it. And, you know, that's not what he said. Yeah. So, um, but I could go on and on and on with examples of, um, you know, how they how they twist your words.
0: Yeah. This leads me to another point, and it's it's sort of a a side point from what I was going to ask next because I want to get into how you got into the pro life movement, but I want to touch on this first because I do find it interesting. There's a lot of conspiracy theories that are that are flying around now Um, on the on the right of center for sure. One of the things I've often thought is that that people on the right. Um, are are susceptible to conspiracy theories simply because we are so aware that the media has lied about so many things. That when somebody tells us the media is covering something up, I can absolutely believe that because I've been lied about. Right? Like they have attributed things to me that I didn't say. They've lied about events I organized. Uh, when, when, when and when when pro-lifers and 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 social conservatives hear well, the government is 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 doing X. A lot of people will be like, why, that's crazy. Why, why would the government lie? Well, you know, half of the... In Canada, the entire government in the United States, half of your, your your political spectrum is pretending that a baby in the womb isn't a baby in defiance of scientific evidence we've had for decades, right? They pretend the birth control pill is good for women. They deny uh, the, the complications from abortion. Like, there's so many things we know they're brazenly lying about that sometimes I feel like we can... We can be more easily led to believe in more elaborate conspiracy theories because it totally fits inside our paradigm of the government tells brazen lies and, and, and essentially assumes it'll get away with it. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think that susceptibility is,
1: is real. It's a, and it's a serious problem because when we fall into conspiracy theories and believe things that aren't true, we uh, strip credibility from our message. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the best way to say avoid that kind of a problem. but um, One of the things I've learned about the media, um, and this goes back to that that year I talked about earlier, when Planned Parenthood opened up out here in Aurora, that was uh, 2007, so now 13 years. Um, We worked with a media consultant at that time, and he was adamant that we had to try to give the benefit of the doubt to the media as much as we could. I found that very helpful. He said, you know, reporters really want to tell a good story. That's what they care about more than anything else. And again and again and again and again and again, I've seen pro-lifers blame the media for, say, not covering a story or for covering a story somewhat inaccurately on some kind of a a really um, aggressive media bias. And I don't think it's really there at the reporter level. Some editors, some editorial boards, I mean, the New York Times is a perfect example of this. Um, There's others. Marie Claire, I think, is very aggressively uh, anti-pro-life. Cosmopolitan has been the same way. And, And there are many others. But generally speaking, reporters want to tell a good story and they will listen to you if you will let, well, if you'll talk to them, first of all, you know, right. I, people always ask me, should I talk to the media? Yes. I've never turned down a media interview. I never do. Whether it's Al Jazeera or whether it's the Cosmopolitan, um, you know, uh, Huffington Post, National Public Radio, I will always do an interview and I try, I try to be very careful When I do those interviews, not to say words that can be taken out of context, Mm -hmm. but also to develop a rapport with the reporter, you know, to to find common ground we can talk about. Maybe it's a TV show that we both like or whatever, um, because they really do want to tell a good story. And very, very often, I find that the bias, it's at play, but it has more to do with what I'd like to call more kind of innocent mistakes. Like you just, they don't understand the way pro-lifers talk, the language that we use, um, and very often pro-lifers don't use normal language. I mean, using, and this is a point that I argue with pro-life leaders all the time. Don't, don't say pre-born children. That's not a word. No one uses that word in the real world. The word unborn is, is over a thousand years old, okay? It's a word that is in common parlance that people use all the time. They accidentally use it. They say unborn baby when they talk about their friend's ultrasound. Only pro-lifers use that word. That's just one small example, but it, it shows a kind of a tendency we have to always be talking to the pro-life crowd and not understanding that there's a, a different way of communicating out there amongst the pro-choice Uh, uh, radicals and amongst the general population. So speaking in plain English is helpful. But back to the issue of of conspiracy theories and and the like, Um, you know, I think a lot of it just comes down to common sense, you know, trust your own experience rather Mm -hmm. than either the media or the conspiracy theorists. Um, You know, does it make sense that, you know, for example, in the current election, many, many, as we were talking about before, we we press the record button, uh, you know, many of the uh, conservatives are saying, well, pollsters are cooking the numbers to help Joe Biden and suppress GOP turnout. You know, that, that just doesn't see, you can't get away with a thing like that. It's very, very hard to, uh, for example, fake a moon landing. I mean, you're not going to get away with that. You're not going to get away with lying about what your poll numbers really say. Um, conspiracies are very hard to keep under wraps. Keep under wraps. And you can't have That's, you know, I think, thousands I think of pollsters. The pollsters.
0: You That's know, most lying important. to you
1: and getting away with it. So just kind of use your common sense, you know.
0: The uh, interesting uh, on on that media subject, just because I've had the same experience where I've had great conversations with reporters, and I almost always know when I have a great conversation with a reporter that the story is not going to show up. Like I had a thirty minute conversation uh, once with a reporter from the Huffington Post who kept on saying, "Well, what do you what do you think about maternal health care benefits?" And I'm like, yeah, "I actually support them." And she's like, well, why would you support that? I'm like, to be completely honest, uh, there's a list of policies being used in Hungary, Israel, Germany, etc. And I support them because they bring the abortion rate down. Um, I think abortion's wrong, regardless of whether these policies, <clears throat> excuse me, are in place. But I'm, I'm actually uh, actually a lot more open to a lot more policies than you think. And she started going through the list and realized I'd written a lot about why the alt right wasn't pro life and and why they were actually very pro choice and pro eugenics. Which, and she's like, this is very interesting. This is going to make such an interesting call. And then and that one never showed up. And then during the baby body part scandal, this was shortly before. Um, a bunch of uh, my colleagues and I uh, went to a Planned Parenthood in Buffalo, New York to actually uh, join in on an initiative that, that you organized um, to protest Planned Parenthood. I got a call from the head of our public broadcaster in, in, in the prairies in Saskatoon who said, well, I'm just uh, taking a look at this story about baby body parts being sold in the States, and I was wondering, you're you know, the comms director for a pro-life organization, does this ever happen here? I'm like, well, not only does this happen here, I can, if you stay on the phone with me, I can direct you to where on the website of the Abortion Rights Coalition of Canada, Joyce Arthur defends this practice and actually says, you know, it's something good that can happen as a result of abortion, medical research, etc. So I guided him to the spot where Canada's leading abortion rights group defended this practice as a good thing thing and he was like holy cow this is crazy i'll call you back i'm gonna go to my editor i'm gonna call you back shortly and i hung up i'm like no you're not and sure enough never got a call from him right but that would be a good example of a reporter who thought this is a crazy story but the editor's like yeah we're not touching that with a 10-foot pole so i think there's something to that the ground level guys are hunting for a story but the editors are like no we don't cover those stories
1: Right. I mean, you see that in headlines. I've had reporters apologize to me for the headlines put on top of their articles. Oh yeah, you know, they yeah, yeah. Control over that.
0: So, uh, when you were growing up in the pro life movement, was it sort of something you did? You always aspire to follow in in your father's footsteps and and then take over the Pro Life Action League from him eventually. Was it always a, a sure thing that you were going to do this, or did you take a more meandering path? Because you were. It's it's not fair to ask you when you became part of the pro life movement because you were kind of just born into it. But when did it become a full-time profession for you? I guess would be the good question. Well, I wasn't quite born into it. I was 6
1: years old when we went to our very first or maybe I was 5 uh, when we went to our very first uh no, I just turned 6. It was October of uh so this month uh 1972. A okay. year before uh or about 6 months before Roe versus Wade, not even that, 4 months. Uh my my mother uh, had been had agreed to go to a pro-life rally in downtown Chicago at what was then the Civic Center is now the Daily Plaza. Uh, my dad had been playing to watch a Notre Dame football match and, and uh, his wife informed him, no, we're going to the Civic Center for this Illinois Right to Life rally. Um, and one of the guest speakers was, was Henry, Henry Hyde, who at the time was in the state legislature. Hyde later lent his name to the Hyde Amendment that protects unborn babies from, uh, from, having, uh, from being killed with taxpayer money and it saved at least 2 million lives since it was enacted in the 70s. Um, Henry Hyde was speaking out against an effort to try to change the abortion law in Illinois. That was what was happening around the country. People don't realize that um, we think of abortion as kind of an inevitable, that there was this juggernaut was rolling along and and changing abortion laws at the state level. And the Supreme Court just came and kind of sped up a process that was already underway. That's not in fact true. Uh, There was a rollback happening as states like New York and Colorado began to discover what, it, what was actually happening with abortion as they became abortion kind of mega centers around the country. And, and legislatures were you know, beginning to, to consider measures to, uh, to recriminalize or at least uh, you know, pull back from the liberalization of abortion that they'd adopted. Uh, but there was also the effort to try to continue that changing of laws. And we were resisting that in Illinois. And that's what this rally was all about. And at that rally, someone handed my dad a copy of, of uh, Life and Death the uh, flyer that uh, Dr. John Wilkie put together and there was a aborted baby on the front and a living baby. And there was inside of it, a, a bucket of late term aborted babies from actually from Canada where you're from yeah. oh. uh, because abortion was legalized sooner. And one of the babies in that dumpster and that black and white photo reminded him of my baby picture. And that's when abortion became personal for him and he became obsessed with the issue. Um, and then after Roe v Wade came down, uh, he started to, to research it even more and to try to talk to people in the church and people in the community and eventually founded a small pro-life organization. And, you know, fast forward to 1980 when he founded the Pro-Life Action League. Uh, and that was very much of a family affair. My brothers and I were uh, in the office stuffing envelopes and uh, we carrying pro- protest signs. We had these incredibly heavy uh, press board uh, wooden signs that said, you know, pro-life action league and abortion is murder and such. And they were so heavy. I, I feel so blessed that we now use cord blast, you know, and vinyl and stuff like this. Our signs are so light. And we've, we've just come so far in terms of the technical tools that we're using. But I never had a thought of joining the pro-life movement as a, a profession. Um, there was absolutely no expectation that any of us would do that. Uh, and I think that's very good of my parents to have left that open. They just wanted us to pursue our interests and and to find careers that we cared about. My story was a little more circuitous. I came, uh, I was, and probably partly as a consequence of my background, um, I left the the Catholic faith that I had been raised with when I was about 20, 21 years old, um, just tired of all the pressure. Um, you know, the pressure to, you felt like a spotlight was on you too. You didn't just you couldn't just be a regular rank and file Catholic. There was this expectation that you're going to be super holy. Uh, and that continues to be a problem. I mean, uh, people have a sort of, um, they either think you're a saint or, or they think you're the devil, you know, if they're on the other side of the issue. And, um, and that can be really kind of disturbing to feel like people don't really know you. They, they're attributing too much virtue to you and more than you deserve. Um, so anyway, I, anyway, I left the faith. I came back, uh, Largely, for a whole series of factors. I remained pro-life the whole time, um, though I kind of waffled on the legal side of it. I was looking for a way to ground my pro-life convictions in something solid, something more than just a kind of sentimental attitude towards fetuses, which I'd always had. Uh, and that was one of the figu- factors that led me back to, to faith, um, finding that ultimately you cannot ground moral imperatives, thou shalt not kill. Uh, in uh, relativistic thinking. Something has to be true about the human person and about the world in order for us to really say definitively, not only is abortion wrong, but th- it's so wrong that you can compel others by law not to do it. Right. But the, the more immediate um, f- sort of influence on me was taking a class in natural family planning from the couple, to couple league a group that trains uh, mostly Catholic, but, but any couples in uh, how to, recognize the signs of fertility that cycle through a woman's body every month and postpone pregnancy by exercising self-control rather than using devices and um, and medicines to stop uh, the act of sexual intimacy from bearing fruit, from giving forth new human life. And the practice of natural family planning led me to recognize in my own marriage the damage that contraception had done and that left me with a sort of puzzling question how can the catholic church which is wrong about everything i thought be right about contraception the one thing they're hated for the most and so i had a very odd experience of walking through the the one door that people want to nail shut uh in the catholic church and and finding that their position on contraception made sense to me maybe they're right about say the existence of god and um because of that experience, I connected with an old friend from college who was taking a natural family planning course himself, a guy named Steve, who, who was founding an organization to promote uh, natural family planning because he's, he had said to his fiance after one of their classes, you know, I think just doing this could change someone's life. And the next day, I called him up and said, hey, Steve, I'm back in the church. You know, I took an NFP class and it changed my faith life. And he says, What? I was just saying to my fiance yesterday that that's what might happen. And so we worked together uh, at an organization called the Gift Foundation, promoting um, the sort of biblical uh, view of marriage as a uh, an act of self-donation, of uh, human sexuality as an expression of this sort of sacramental gift uh, of self. And, um, you know, starting with, with chapter one of Genesis, uh, male and female, he created them and blessed them and, said to them, be fruitful and multiply. What happens on page one of the Bible? A marriage. A marriage between a man and a woman meant to give forth life. Um, so that was our message. We did that for about five years. And then um, I made the move to the pro League because my, my folks needed some help with communications. And uh, I had learned a lot about, about uh, web design and uh, design and layout, literature, and, and other things that could be helpful with them. And, and the, the, the money was kind of running out on this other project uh, for a whole host of reasons we don't know to go into, but uh, so I took the opportunity to come over to the Pro-Life Action League in November of 2002, uh, working on our, our media. So, um, you know, kind of created our first serious email list and regular communication that way. Uh, twice redesigned our webpage before handing it over to professionals once the, the technicalities had gotten beyond my ability, um, since I wasn't uh, solely working on, on that side of things. Um, working with the media and doing press releases and uh, gradually took on more and more of a leadership role. And it was really probably about 2009 that my title officially changed, but it was uh, the fight against the Planned Parenthood facility in Aurora that opened up in 2007 that really, where I cut my teeth as a leader, you know, having to talk to the media constantly and organize large, large events and communicate effectively. And I really drilled into, you know, how to write a good email, how to get people to click a button on a website and, uh, so I've been executive director since
0: 2009, and so what was what was that fight all about? For uh, what was the fight against the Planned Parenthood in Aurora all about? For our listeners who aren't familiar, so in uh, in June
1: of 2007, I was taking a staycation. You know, I stayed at home and I was building a playhouse for my kids by my own design. It's really something else, I have to say. <laughs> um, eight foot, uh, eight foot by eight foot floors, and it's just a delightful playhouse in the, in the backyard. And I still hang out there all the time. So I had my tool belt on, and I was working on the on the floorboards, I think, at the time that he called and said, Eric, have you heard anything about Planned Parenthood opening up by a high school in Aurora? I hadn't heard a thing. What are you talking about? So I just got a call from uh, Peter Breen. Uh, Peter Breen was, at the time, the head of a uh, network of, of by I think two or three pregnancy centers, uh, pro-life pregnancy centers in the Chicago suburbs. And he had heard from a priest. Who had heard from a contractor uh, who had been attempted to be hired by Planned Parenthood uh, that a abortion clinic was secretly being built in Aurora, a giant abortion facility. He had, I guess this contractor had seen the plans, had seen, you know, 13 recovery rooms, two surgical rooms, bulletproof drywall, cameras all around the building. It just didn't add up. It didn't conform to the multi-use medical office that uh, the city thought was coming in at this location. So I, I said well I'll check it out. I hopped on my bicycle and I biked over to the construction site where Gemini office development was building a very very large ominous building and at the time it was almost completed. They were working on drywall and landscaping and um, so we began to ask questions. Uh, what is this building really? Uh, why 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 are we hearing rumors that this might be an abortion facility? And uh, all these letters, you know, kind of poured into the city of Aurora and and into the local newspaper, the Beacon News uh, that i had referred to earlier. And eventually uh, the news broke through the Aurora Beacon that in fact, this this building was going to be the largest Planned Parenthood abortion, largest abortion facility of any kind, and the largest Planned Parenthood abortion facility at that time in the entire country. Uh, something like 14,000 square feet, maybe 17,000 square feet, very, very large. And, um, and that uh, they were planning to open up in September. So we went into overdrive to see what we could do to try to stop this. Um, I reached out to David B. Wright from 40 Days for Life to ask his advice. They were just about to launch their very first nationwide 40 Days for Life campaign that fall. And, uh, and I asked him, David, do you think we could do a 40-day prayer vigil building up to September 18th, the date they're supposed to open, which brought us back to like August 6th or something like that. This was on like August 1st. So we have five days. Can we, can we do this? And he said, you can and make it 24 hours a day because people will respond when there's an urgency. You've got urgency. You've got a brand new giant mega abortion clinic. And not only that, but they lied about it. We got uh, documents through freedom of information act. Uh, showing that, in fact, Planned Parenthood had literally lied uh, to our uh, planning and development committee saying they didn't know who their tenant was going to be. This Gemini office development front company they created. They lied about their signage, they, a whole host of lies and, and other irregularities in their uh, entire permitting and applications and, and construction process. So, so we, um, we decided to call for a, a meeting at, at the, in the basement of my church, uh, St. George Byzantine Catholic Church in Aurora. And at the day of the meeting, it was pouring rain. And I thought, it's going to be me and my mom and my dad and my attorney and the media guy they're bringing. And it's going to be this this five or six of us just sitting there wishing somebody had showed up. In the event, we had 80 people crammed into the basement of this church, this little church in Aurora, uh, dripping wet. It was so humid that the, the giant notepad I'd gotten to write notes on started to kind of fall apart. It was so pulpy. That's how humid and nasty it was in the room. But we had people fired up. And before the end of that meeting, we had more than half of the days on our 40-day calendar covered by people who were going to take responsibility for signing up folks for their church. Uh, within just a few more days, I'd filled up all 40 days. We ended up praying around the clock for more than 40 days because this entire process of, of praying there all the time just laid a groundwork where we were able to get hundreds of people to go to city council and demand an investigation into fraud. Um, we found the city had to postpone the opening day because they were still investigating and we got a federal judge to uh, to give them permission to do that when Planned Parenthood tried to sue them and force them to let them open. So we kept them closed for a couple extra weeks. It was actually a 52-day round-the-clock vigil uh, before Planned Parenthood finally opened and then we shifted years into An ongoing pro life prayer and counseling and protest presence out there at that abortion facility that continues to this day. Now we have a state of the art pregnancy center directly across from Planned Parenthood in what used to be a vacant lot. A vacant lot that we were actually kicked off of many times over the years when various property owners decided they didn't want our troublesome presence there. Now there's a state of the art pro life pregnancy center, Waterleaf Women's Center operating there. Uh, helping women every day that Planned Parenthood is open. And so we have friends there on site. Our sidewalk counselors are, are uh, in a very uh, friendly atmosphere. And that uh, pro-life presence continues. And I really credit that to the prayer that we laid down during that, those, uh, those first 52 days of, of trying to stop the place from opening.
0: For, for those who aren't familiar with the Pro-Life Action League and for any listeners who are interested in finding out more, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to our interview Uh, with eric's father joe scheidler where we talk about the beginnings of it Um, what is the pro-life action league what do you do i know that you do uh, what we at ccbr do in terms of abortion victim photography but you've also sent handcuffs to every abortionist in in the united states you guys do all sorts of stuff so what is the pro-life action league and and, and what do you guys do grassroots direct
1: action pro-life group our focus is not uh so much on what most people think of as the pro-life movement we're not worried about about legislation so much we'll support things we'll we'll ask people to make phone calls we don't get that involved in elections though we will educate voters when elections come around uh you know we have our fingers in a lot of different uh pies but our main focus is direct action putting regular people to work in their own communities uh talking to their pastors and offering to help to lead a pro-life uh outreach from the church uh organizing uh you know public protest in the in the public square outside abortion facilities or politicians uh, you know meetings or uh, fundraisers for for planned parenthood or other abortion providers um, more and more uh, especially since the um, the, the big uh, uh, really started with the, the opposition to the uh, abortion provisions in the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare especially the uh, HHS mandate that required um, employers to provide abortifacients and abortion-inducing drugs and contraceptives to their employees free of any kind of a copay. We resisted that. We organized Stand Up for Religious Freedom rallies all over the country, hundreds and hundreds of rallies. We kind of took what we were doing locally in Chicago. We've always been involved organizing nationally, you know, working with other leaders, traveling around the country to train people on how to do things. But we really started to focus on more simultaneous nationwide events in 2012 with the resistance to Obamacare's abortion provisions. So we organized hundreds and hundreds of rallies all over the country at federal plazas, federal buildings, uh, federal courts, um, city centers, protesting the Affordable Care Act. And that gave us a kind of uh, access to a huge um, pool of local leaders. And we've gone again and again back to those leaders and organized nationally uh, against, for example, Planned Parenthood's horrific body parts harvesting scheme back in 2015. That was a, a major focus of our efforts all that year. Uh, the protest PP, the hashtag protest PP movement, we got involved with, with uh, Created Equal and with Monica Miller and Citizens for Pro-Life Society. And so now we have, you know, three or four of these major national events we do every year. Uh, we usually have a protest PP event. This year, we decided instead to do more of an election focused. Uh, education campaign at churches we have something called the national day of remembrance for aborted children where we go to the burial places and other memorials that are set up in honor of our aborted uh unborn brothers and sisters and we remember them we give uh women and men suffering from abortion in their pasts an opportunity to speak out we give them public permission to mourn at that event Um, and that's become more and more popular Uh, even during covid times we had outstanding turnout. um, Nearly 200 of these memorial services took place across the country. We do a a nationwide Stations of the Cross on Good Friday every year. We do a uh, a, what we call Peace in the Womb Christmas caroling event every year. And we also uh, train people through our videos and through our our, uh, website and uh, other tools that we have available to them how to do things like protesting a Planned Parenthood fundraiser. We've gotten very creative with our, our protests of Planned Parenthood fundraiser. and I have to say that COVID time has been really kind of disappointing for us. This month, October, we usually get to uh, to protest a trivia night for Planned Parenthood at a, uh, a sort of bistro, a, a, a brew pub in Chicago called Revolution Brewing. It used to be one of my favorite venues you know, I used to love their beer and I don't, I don't drink it anymore because they support Planned Parenthood so aggressively. This trivia night protest has just gotten better and better every year. We bring our victim photos out there. We have a literature piece uh, called Getting to Know Planned Parenthood that looks like it comes right out of Planned Parenthood's uh, central office. You would think it's a pro-Planned Parenthood piece. You open it up inside, you find the, what the truth is about Planned Parenthood and their 40% abortion market share here in the United States. We had laser beams sh- displaying pro-life message on the ceiling of the room where the guests were lined up until they finally figured out how to bring the blinds on. We even scoped the place out. We actually broke my, my uh, uh, a boycott for, for one lunch to go out there and have lunch and then have the uh, manager of the place show us around the, the uh, event space upstairs. So we, we knew what we were going to be protesting. It's just gotten better and better and better. And this year, there wasn't any such. It was done virtually. Uh, We infiltrated it, but it was boring, and uh, I really missed having the opportunity. I mean, on one level, I'm glad they're not able to raise as much money, and they're as stymied doing stuff as we are, maybe even more so, uh, other than abortions, of course, which they've kept doing, um, even opening up a new abortion facility in Illinois during COVID times, um, potentially with money stolen from the American people. But, um, you know, on the other hand, the opportunity it gives you to highlight – the downside of Planned Parenthood and educate people. I want to have those opportunities and I can't wait for them to return with more normal times in the near future.
0: So, and since you took over pro-life action league, uh, I know every pro-life leader has one or two of their favorite stories. Um, That might've been your favorite story, actually getting a, getting a laser to shine things on the, on on the ceiling of their event room. But (laughs) what are a couple of the stories that really stand out to you? Some of your big successes for the over the last couple of years. Yeah. Well, I, if you don't mind I'm I'm going to go
1: back to here I'll tell you what I'll tell if we have time I'll tell another one but let's go back to 2000, <laughs> 2017. Um you know 2017 uh you'll recall that um Donald Trump was uh, was inaugurated. And the day a, just a couple of days after his inauguration they held the first so-called women's march. It was a kind of anti-Trump, yeah, <laughs> anti-Trump, uh anti um um Republic, i guess Republican or a you know, very sort of pro abortion uh, march. there were some pro lifers who tried to go and be part of it, and you know were not met with much um much friendliness by by the radicals behind the women 's march well the, the women 's march was massive it was it was all over the country you know there was, was a huge contingent in Chicago, in chicago um, massive uh, display of people out at, in uh, the national mall in washington d c And I guess after the Women's March, a call went out to defend Planned Parenthood and get out there and get active now that you're all mobilized on behalf of women's rights. And uh, we were organizing at that time a defund Planned Parenthood event uh, for for February, I think it was February 11th, maybe. We knew that uh, the Trump administration, at least we hoped, I'd say we hoped that the Trump administration was going to be open to defunding Planned Parenthood. We, we took a gamble on this formerly pro-choice uh, you know, public figure, uh, Donald Trump, who was saying now that he was pro-life. Uh, some pro-lifers believed him immediately. Others were more reluctant. Um, I was one of the more reluctant ones. I fought very hard against, uh, uh, you know, within my own circle, not, not officially uh, as a pro-factionally, uh, against nominating him for the Republican uh, presidential ticket. Uh, but I came around gradually to being, you know, cautiously optimistic that he would be open to defunding Planned Parenthood. So we were organizing these rallies, uh, which have been going on now every year since the 2015 body part scandal and David D'Addio's videos first exposed America to this, you know, horrific, cynical. A disgusting practice of harvesting the body parts of unborn babies and selling them to medical experiment companies. It's a really despicable thing that really shocked even pro-choice people. So we kept that going with these annual protests. And this was going to be one of those defund Planned Parenthood hashtag defund PP. Well, somehow, some way uh, in whatever chat room it originated from, I'll never know, but they got the idea that what we were trying to do was not to defund Planned Parenthood, but to defend Plant Parenthood. We came in on Monday, the Monday after the Women's March to find our inbox filled with leadership applications from people that just didn't sound right. Like I want to organize a demo was one of the notes and quotes we saw a demo. Pro-life people never ever maybe a few of the kind of more whole life lefty pro-lifers will say demo but almost nobody says demo for demonstration. We say protest or rally or something like that or or we just say the whole word demonstration so that was kind of fishy uh we just we had these little hints that what they were not understanding what we were doing here and so we had to kind of carefully go we started looking up some of the people that had applied to be leaders of these rallies um on on facebook and other social media channels and we found we found them all with their pink hats on they're they're you know they're kitten hats let's call them um and uh it was, it was, it took us a little while to kind of put two and two together, figure out what was going on. So we had to go through and kind of like carefully, uh, what we did was we sent a message to the people that we knew, uh, had, we had determined were we're not really pro-life saying, well, Planned Parenthood doesn't want to have a conf, you know, conflicting, uh, rallies they don't want protests outside of their facilities, so we 're not going to be doing that after all. you know or we, we didn't lie to them, but we worded it in such a way as to kind of get them to not do anything or not show up and counter protest and so forth. Uh, and it took them a while to kind of figure out what was going on and then we went and updated our website to make it super clear. We put a hyphen in there defund so that uh, we wouldn't be getting all this uh, you know, mistaken applications for leadership. Um, meanwhile, the media started to pick up on what we were doing. And by the time we got to um, the actual March for Life, which was postponed that year because of the inauguration of the Women's March, I was actually getting way more media attention from the left for this defund Planned Parenthood rally than I was from the right or from the mainstream media. Huffington Post, National Public Radio, Um, maybe even like whatever the precursor to rewire was um, RH reality check or whatever it was, they were covering this stuff like crazy. I was doing long interviews with HuffPo and um, we ended up earning like massive, massive media coverage in, in, uh, in 2017 for these defund Planned Parenthood rallies. And then fast forward to April, we had another protest PP event, the kind of regular annual event that was planned. And um, right before the day before our April 2017 protest PP event, I heard from Marjorie Dannenfelser of Susan B. Anthony list. Uh, She wrote to say, Hey, good luck with the rallies this weekend. The timing couldn't be more perfect. Turns out that Kellyanne Conway was going into the white house the day before our rallies to Try to get President Trump to do what George W. Bush would not do and Ronald Reagan tried to do, which is to strip Planned Parenthood of their Title X funding. Ronald Reagan, the Reagan administration had attempted this. They had to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court to establish that, in fact, the original legislation from the 70s uh, allowing Title X funds, uh, opening up Title X funds for family planning were not intended to be available to uh, abortion providers who had a conflict of interest. You know, they've got abortion here on one, you know, over here, and then they've got family planning over here. We don't want those two mixed together. So Reagan administration established the legality of stripping abortion providers of this funding. Then Clinton came in before it could be implemented. George W. Bush thought this is not politically viable. We don't want to go after Planned Parenthood like this and sat on it. Would Trump do it? Kellyanne Conway went in there to make the case. We could strip at least this money, 60 to $80 million from Planned Parenthood every year. And look, there's protests going on all over the country tomorrow. Hundreds of protests are taking place. Tens of thousands of your pro-life voters are going out into the public square to ask you to do this. And that was a major factor con- convincing President Trump to actually change those regulations, the Protect Life rule that ultimately led to Title X's rules being changed and Planned Parenthood losing $60 million dollars a year. Uh, That is probably the the, the brightest feather in my cap because it's an example of where public protest directly influenced public policy in a way that will save lives from abortion because Planned Parenthood has not got access to those funds anymore. Not only do they not have that money to help them keep the lights on and, and all the other things they do with that type of reimbursement from the government, but it also gives them less access to that population. Of, of, un, of underserved and underprivileged people who might be more susceptible to their abortion message. So they don't have as much access then to selling abortions to those people who would have been coming to them for those family planning services. So that's one of my uh, favorite stories to tell because it's a victory for direct action, which is harder to measure. It's easy to measure, here's a piece yeah. of legislation we got passed or we didn't, or here's how many uh, you know, women we helped at this pregnancy center. It's so much more difficult to say, here's the impact we had with our victim photos out on a street one day, or, or here's what protesting at this politician's fundraiser
0: did. To have some direct evidence of the impact of our work was just a huge blessing. So I guess to, to, to sort of wrap it up now, you're the, you're the second generation of Scheidler's who's running the Pro-Life Action League. Um, your family's been involved in protesting abortion since before Roe v. Wade. There's always a lot of rhetoric about uh, this is the generation to end abortion. I think we're on the third one now um and what i wanted to know is 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 i know your dad has been in this for the long haul and i know you're in this for the long haul what do you think that long haul is going to look like not just in terms of an election uh, prognostication but just in general for the pro-life movement in the united states the future of the pro-life movement the abortion wars what's your take because you've obviously thought about this because this is not just the future of the pro-life movement and the abortion wars it's also your future they're inextricably tied together
1: Right. Um, You know, that's a tough question for me to answer, Jonathan, because um, honesty is very, very important to me. And I don't like to BS people. uh, And I I don't like BS in general. Um, At the same time, you know, it's important to encourage people and and give a positive perspective on things because we're too given to cynicism and and pessimism uh, and feeling downtrodden because we aren't getting a very quick victory. Um, You know, like you said, this is now the third pro-life generation that we're on. Uh, we hear chants of, of how this is a pro-life generation. Well, you know, at this point, who's getting abortions? A few kind of uh, younger Gen Xers, millennials, and Gen Z. It's the youth, the supposedly pro-life youth, that are getting the abortions right now. You know, there are some studies that show a little bit of a trend more towards a pro-life perspective, or at least not wanting to, to say you're pro-abortion on the part of, of younger people, and that's encouraging, but it's not a slam dunk. It's, it's not, it's not going to, you can't secure the future by changing one or two percentage points, you know, on a Gallup survey. That's not going to be enough. The long haul, I'm going to have to just be honest about this. The long haul is going to be very, very long. Roe versus Wade mm-hmm. here in the United States, it may or may not be overturned. Uh, if it is, it may not be in a way that's obvious. It, it might be more of a chipping away. We might even be in the middle of that and not even know it right now. Uh, even if Roe v. Wade is overturned, the issue is going to return to the states. It's going to be very much harder for states to pass total abortion bans when they can be enforced uh, than when they can't. I mean, it's kind of easy for Georgia to pass a heartbeat bill when they know it's going to be blocked and they're not actually going to have to enforce it anywhere, anytime soon. So the the state level battles are going to be key. I mean, the fact that we're even talking about how we go about dealing with a post-Roe world is encouraging. Um, It still could be a generation before that Supreme Court is, is has the courage to overturn Roe v. Wade and it may never happen. Uh, what it's going to take, I think, is a continuing transformation of people's attitudes. And that's a slow process. Uh, critical to all of it is driving down abortion rates. That's probably the most important thing we can do. And we do mm-hmm. that through legislation. We do that through education. We do that through sometimes painful education. The exposure of the American people, the Canadian people, the British people, all the people to what abortion does to the unborn child, the victim photography that makes people angry, but also makes it a lot harder for them to be okay with abortion. We have to get that out there more and more. Um, We have to be able to share our message with our friends and neighbors. One of the projects we've really focused on uh, this past year has been an update to our little handbook. I'll show it to you on the screen sharing the pro-life message. I have one of those on my desk. Do you have the new sixth edition with all the updated figures and more questions about medication, abortion, and all that? We've got a new edition and it's, uh, it's fantastic. So we're educating the people. In you know, legislation, um, it educates it, and it actually drives down abortion rates, especially bans on taxpayer funding and requirements that um, uh, minor girls talk to their parents about abortion or even get their permission before getting abortions. Uh, those drive down abortion rates because as long as we have what is it about eight hundred and fifty, roughly eight hundred fifty thousand abortions in the year in the in the United States, maybe a little fewer now. We we only have uh, data from what two thousand seventeen right now. As long as there's eight hundred thousand abortions in the United States every year, that that results in almost everyone having some kind of personal connection to abortion. Mm-hmm. Your aunt, your sister, you know your your wife, your ex girlfriend, uh, your current girlfriend you you know were involved with abortion you paid for an abortion you've had an abortion you know uh it, it's going to be impossible to really move uh the, the country towards a willingness to ban this horrific violence when people have a, such a strong incentive to tolerate it not to be okay with it nobody's really that okay with abortion uh, other than maybe leah torres the insane pro-abortion doctor on twitter um but people are, people are uncomfortable with it, but they're willing to tolerate it because they just can't think of their family member or their friend as an evil person who contributed to the murder of an innocent human being, even though that's pretty much what happened. Uh, right. We have to make it more rare so that our society isn't so deeply invested in it. Uh, mm. So that's, that's sort of my long view, is that, that we have to do everything we can through the law, through public education, uh, through, through exposing the evil of the abortion industry like they do at, at Operation Rescue and Citizens for pro Life Society and other groups, um, so that abortion rates continue to decline and decline and decline. And, you know, honestly, one of the factors playing into that is going to be provision of services to people. You know, wh- whatever policy answer that boils down to, we need more access to health care, and social services whether it's through public funding or private funding I'm not going to get into what the right policy is there but that's going to be an important ingredient as well um, so to, to uh, reduce some of the pressures only some of them but some of the pressures that lead women to get abortions women rich women get abortions and countries with very um, elaborate social safety networks like Sweden have actually very can have very high abortion rates but we do want to offer that solution too um, so it's a broad broad response um, that requires a host of different types of pro-life initiatives and different types of organizations the pro-life action league we're about direct action and public education and we're excited to be playing a role in in this ongoing battle uh, that uh, we recognize is going to take decades but that's what history tells us you know long-term uh, you know, the fight for justice can be a very long-term fight, and we have to be willing to do that. We have to be willing to accept small victories along the way, like saving that baby at an abortion facility today or passing the piece of legislation in this state tomorrow. And, uh, and looking forward, you know, however far distant the future might be, to restoring true legal protection to our unborn brothers and sisters, even if it requires a long-term effort by us. We owe it to them to stick with it.
0: Final question is, I understand uh, your father, Joe, has been doing, he's been in and out of the hospital lately. Can you give our listeners an update on how he's doing? He's doing really well. Um, you know, and he's 93. So anytime
1: there's a hospital visit or a medical issue, it can be really concerning. A couple of weeks ago, he had a, a minor procedure um, that, uh, you know, caused him to uh, to have his salt levels go down. He was getting, getting dizzy and, and falling a little bit. And so uh, my folks took him, my mom took him to the to the hospital and, and he was admitted for observation and they found out his salt was low and got him on some saline and uh, did some physical therapy. And he was released from the hospital a couple of days later and then started to have some issues with a lot of pain in his bowel, you know, his, his abdomen. He was just in intense pain. They went back to uh, the hospital. My mom had to actually call an ambulance because uh, he couldn't get down the stairs uh, of my parents, you know, two story home. And they found uh, pretty quickly that he had a very serious hernia, and so they had to do emergency surgery uh, that afternoon, which was very successful. They were able to 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 tie everything up and and correct that problem, and and now he's back home. He did take I just heard from my mother. He did take a fall again the other day, uh, and uh, and he's in a lot of pain. His back is very very sore, but he's recovering very well from the surgery, and he's in really high spirits. But uh, we would really just encourage people to continue to pray for him uh, every day because, uh, you know, when you're 93 and, uh, you know, even, even in great health and, and has all of his mental faculties and we're very grateful to God for that. But it's always uh, frightening when somebody that old uh, is, uh, is falling and, and having issues like that. So we really need those prayers and are very grateful for the you know tens of thousands of people on Facebook who've been praying and sharing the, his status and, and all of that. So. I appreciate the opportunity to share the update, and I'm so grateful for your prayers and for all your listeners' prayers and all those tens, probably hundreds of thousands now in the pro-life movement who have been praying for him. Well, Eric, thanks so much for taking the time to, uh, to have this conversation with us. It's been a pleasure, Jonathan, and, uh, you know, thanks to all the work you're doing. I, I follow you closely, and I'm, I'm very grateful for your voice of reason and courage uh, as, a, as a younger pro-life activist, uh, and so it's a real honor to sit down and talk with you for a little while.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Eric Scheidler of the Pro-Life Action League. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to head over to lifesightnews.com, Click on the podcast tab where you can subscribe to our podcast, which is available on any of the platforms where you get your content. Thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.